0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Steve Clark, and a very warm welcome to Brooklands this evening and as ever, thank you for supporting the Trust. Um, I wanted to start this evening by remembering our great friend and local lad, Henry Hope Frost, who tragically lost his life one year ago tomorrow. And I'm sure we'll probably hear more from our guests about Henry throughout the evening. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, saloon car racing for me has always bridged that gap. Between a car that you could drive to work, or hopefully drive to work, and then race at the weekend. Uh, back in the early 70s, remarkably, I embarked on a project to emulate the great Dave, David Brody and build a Twin Cam 105E Anglia. I soon found out the fastest thing on it was the rust. <laughs> I've even got the book that I dug out of a deepest ass- Tune in a 105E Anglia, it makes fascinating reading I have to say and I'm sure most boys these days would have absolutely no idea what the language is in there. So uh, I think we're about to embark on an evening to learn more about the history um, and relive in my point of view some memories of those early days. So will you please welcome our two guests this evening, Matt James and Alan Hyde.
1: Evening everyone evening. Wow. The evening has got off to an incredible start, Matty. Uh, we yes. have 180 people that have turned up here to listen to you talk about touring cars. No pressure. Thanks. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> pre- no pressure at all. Thank you so much for coming, everyone. Um, we are celebrating in a way tonight uh, this um, wonderful volume. Um, well, f- first of all, I'll introduce uh, the relationship that I have with Matt James. Um, I'm Alan and I am uh, the pit lane commentator for the British Touring Car Championship, which is something that I've done pretty much for um, the last 25 years. The whole 60-year so, history, isn't it? So it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a worry, yeah. It's been a hard Sorry, life. Um, no, that's absolutely fine. Um, so I, I first talked about the British Touring Car Championship in the pit lane uh, for the circuit commentary in 1994. Um, and uh, I've done every every race meeting since 1998, so, uh, so uh, quite a long time. Um, and for a, a lot, I, I was thinking about this driving over tonight. Um, Matt James, who is the editor of Motorsport News, worked at Mo- uh, Motoring News, first of all, and then became Motorsport News. Um, Matt, Matt has uh, been my friend for uh, a huge part of that. And, and I realised that we've been mates for um, pretty, pretty close to half of my life. Which is uh, quite a. Uh, how quite, old are you? Quite, quite. A, well, I don't think we need Come to go on. into these what details this? at on, this point this in the, uh, of the evening. Um, my, my history with Matt James and uh, the British Touring Car Championship is interesting um, because I was addicted pretty much from the mid late 80s as uh, uh, an avid follower of the championship. Um, uh, some races that I went to see live, um, but the vast majority that I would watch on BBC's grandstand in, in the in the late 1980s um and and then i was lucky enough to become involved as a commentator and lucky enough to become involved with the british touring car championship and for some considerable time i tried to convince matt that it was an important part of his job at motoring news to come along to btcc meetings on a regular basis but you weren't keen matt were you well, not all the time the TVR Tuscan Challenge
2: was going on. See, that was your problem. You were a little bit caught up in the British GT package, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. But it was your incessant nagging that this really is a, a championship that I have to go and pay serious attention to again.
1: So 15 uh, years ago, 15 years ago, you decided
2: yeah, that you would maybe dip your toe in the water of the British Touring car championship. And the bug got you, didn't It, it? was decided for me. Um, that I would go and cover that championship, but I'd, I'd had an interest in it going going way back to to the 80s. Um, a couple of the drivers I followed ended up in touring cars when single-seater careers maybe didn't pan out how they th- how they'd hoped. Um, so I was I was into it from uh, from you know early teens.
1: Um, when you came into the uh, championship and started to cover it, and you've covered pretty much every race since you, since you came in, you're going into your 16th year this year. Um, it, it was a bug, wasn't it? A, a, a bug that, that, that bit you, and it, it bit quite quickly as
2: well. It did. I think my initial scepticism, and, and this is an argument you hear quite often when people talk about the British Touring Car Championship. oh, it's all made up. You know, there's ballast, there's reverse grids, there's different tyres and surely Alan Gow controls what every result is. Well, when you get to see on the inside that how the championship works, out, that isn't true, um, it just isn't true. Uh, the drivers wouldn't allow it to happen and they're, they're passionate about it, they're committed to it. Um, and it, it's a really, really hard championship to win because of those things. Because there are so many factors at play that, that can alter a race result or, or make something happen for our driver differently to what they might expect to navigate your way through what is now 30 races in the year to the end of the season and be successful is, is a heck of a job. And although last year I think we had something ridiculous like 17 race winners throughout the course of the Over season. Over half the, half the races, yeah. Um, so does that mean it's, it's a valid championship? Well, I think if you look at the drivers that were at the top of the title fights, the ones that went to Brown's Hatch with a chance of winning, then the cream rose to the top, so it does show that the, the more skillful drivers can negotiate their way around all the obstacles that are thrown in their way, and it's, it's just the competition is superb. So we, so we got
1: you. And you got me yeah. and and and, and you've become a a, a proper fan, um, making a relationship as well from from the early days with the series director um, Alan Gow. He's a uh, uh, pre- pre- pretty much a, a, a mate of yours and a mate of mine uh, as well. As as far as the the um, the British Touring Car Championship is concerned. I think we all have different reasons why why we love it. Um, I I certainly know how I was kind of hauled in uh, when I first became a fan watching it on TV. Um, And I think we all have, probably everybody here in this room has got their own era. Um, of of the British Touring Car Championship that they particularly adore or they they find they have a, a synergy with. Um, but we will specifically about the uh, about the book, Matt. And first of all, how how the idea for the book came about? Because you haven't written a book before. You've been a prolific writer in motoring news, motorsport news as as it's now known. You're the editor of the magazine. You've written race reports. You've written articles. You've written interviews. You've written all sorts of things over the years. But you've never set, set your mind to writing a book. How did it all come about?
2: Well, no, it was Eric's idea. He got in touch with me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. And uh, This is Eric at the back of the book. Yes, yes. He's, he'll be uh, selling the books later. Um, and, yeah, it's, it, it is it's something... It, we knew the 60-year anniversary was coming up, obviously, working for the publications, Motorsport News and Autosport. So we knew there was a lot coming up for them. Um, and it just made sense to collect that all in- together and and... Do, by doing the research, I could sort of do the magazine research and the book research at the same time.
1: So it, it was... Um, uh, none of us can know everything about a championship over a 60-year history. So um, actually writing the book was uh, an educational process
2: for you, for, for you yourself. Absolutely, uh, absolutely correct, yeah, and We're very fortunate. Um, obviously, I work for the Motorsport Network, and we have an archive, massive archive, um, particularly the, the, the stunning images that you'll see in the book are, are some that have never been published before. Um, and I'll be honest.
1: I prefer the um, prefer the pictures to the words. I'm well, <coughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but <laughs> the pictures are amazing. Right, thanks, Al. I'm off. <laughs> yeah, you are yeah, done isn't it. Yeah, you're most welcome. Yeah. Uh, I'll work my way through the words as we go on. But the the pictures from the archive are absolutely stunning. How long did it take to put everything together?
2: Uh, I think Kathy, who's the archivist that, that researched the pictures, didn't see daylight for about six months. Wow. So. Yeah, it was it was a lot of work for her, but the results are, are superb. And, and you know, there's things in there that both jog the memory and and things in there you, you learn every time you look at the the different pictures. So it's um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a really good time.
1: That's the joy, and uh, uh, we're going to be touching on this as we go through the various eras. But um, of course, we've had just about everything. In the British Touring Car Championship, we've had huge, muscly cars. We've had four-wheel drive cars. We've um, th- basically the championship has uh, reflected so beautifully the the, the trends of uh, automotive uh, world, uh, uh, and, and and that's a huge part of its secret, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and I think that's been absolutely vital to keeping it relevant and keeping it fresh for the for the fans because. As we know, in the in the UK, it is one of the championships that can still attract over 30,000 people to a race circuit, and there aren't many that can do that, and that's because it is relevant to what people are driving on the roads, and, and looking ahead, going ahead to 2021, we're now going to have some electrification technology involved in the championship as well, so, you know, it's, it's maintaining its relevance to the road market. That's very, very important, um, and also manufacturers took it seriously, so... You know, that, that goes across all the decades, um, and particularly in the height in of the, the super touring era. And, and they would only want relevant products on the race circuit, wouldn't they? So that, that just kept it fresh. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's been true to its roots and, and it's maintained its popularity.
1: Now, uh, as I say, we are going to go through the various eras. And if you have a particular question, um, I've also been trusted with the technology of this evening as well. And I'm reliably informed that if I do that, then we'll go on to uh, the first. Did, did that go according to plan? It rather did, didn't it? I think it did. <laughs> Which is good news. It's caused quite a quite a stir in the room as well. We're going back to to nineteen fifty eight and the start of the, the, the championship. For those people that don't know, how did the as it then was the National Saloon Car Championship come
2: about? The British Saloon Car Championship. Yeah, it was um, it was the idea of the BRSEC and, and Ken Gregor, who was the secretary manager of Sterling Moss. Um, Production cars had been racing on the tracks of the UK, obviously, since, since the beginning, um, but they were generally bolted on as a class at so the, the back of something else, and, and they didn't really get their own sort of standalone races, and, and it was his idea to do that. They held a, a trial event at Browns Hatch uh, Christmas time in 1957. Uh, that went well, so they devised the regulations, and uh, it was just a chance to give people the, that wanted to drive an ordinary family car on a racetrack to give them the chance to do it.
1: That that was the quote, wasn't it? Uh, A a, a dedicated championship for the competitor who wants to race the ordinary family car uh, to do so throughout an entire season against evenly matched opposition.
2: Yes, in different classes. And
1: and the ethos remains to that really to to today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a theme that's run all the way through it. Um, Although I think the phrase ordinary family car might not quite be so relevant these days. Depends where
1: where you live, actually. Um, uh, So the original championship was up to 1,200 cc's, 1,200 to 1,600, 1,600 to 2.7 litre and over 2.7 litre. So that's a huge spread of cars, isn't
2: it? It is, and that's to try, obviously, to collect as many different models as as people want to race. Um, The the actual, the class structure, the the four-class structure of the BTCC, or the British Saloon Car Championship, as I should call it from the early days, is something that, that morphed, quite regularly from year to year as they were trying to work out which cars they wanted at the front of the field and, and, and trying to ally themselves with the FAA rules at the time as well. So they did tend to change year on year, but um, but they were a success in that first season.
1: There was a shootout at the end of the season, is that right?
2: Yeah, they, um, because the cars were running in different classes, you had um, Tommy Sotworth and Jack Sears managed to score the same amount of points. Tommy Sotworth was in the, in the Jag and, and Jack Sears was in his car. They decided at the end of the year, that after um, they tied on points, to have this shootout, which you can see behind us, after the final round of the season. Um, the championship trophy, the original championship trophy, was sponsored by BMC, uh, the British Motor Corporation, and they brought two identical 1.5-litre Riley's to Brown's Hatch. And uh, they had a five-lap race, and then they swapped cars and had another five-lap race. Brilliant. And uh, worked out the aggregate scores, and uh, Jack Sears walked away as the winner. but. Um, it's interesting that uh, Tommy Sotwood said afterwards that he, he actually regretted agreeing to let them do that. Um, originally they'd said, should we toss a coin to work out who the champion's going to be? And he said, no, 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 that's, that's, you know, we've had a whole season's racing, that's no way to do it. Um, so they, they got the Rileys, but of course it's a BMC car, and he was up against a BMC driver, so he was like, mm, yeah, maybe I was a bit foolish to, <laughs> to, to, to agree <laughs> to that, because yeah, I was obviously going to lose, wasn't
1: I? Just out of interest, um, was anyone there?
2: Well, you were there, weren't you, Al? Well, <laughs> you were in the pit lane doing the commentating. I
1: just wondered if any if anyone might have been there for that, but um, I'll, I'll take it the silence is uh, is is a, is a resounding no. But yeah, horrible, horrible day, but a brilliant way to decide just, the championship. Yeah, look
2: at the lack of pit lane at Browns Hatch as well. It's, it's staggering, isn't it? It's just a bit garages. Horrible. Who needs garages? No, who needs garages? Just, just a little gantry, a, wave a flag. That's little hedgerow. Yeah, um, no problem. South Bank's
1: looking good. Uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So that's when the championship. And the, the, the nice thing about Jack's is Jack. Jack was still an avid follower of the championship until uh, just a, a few years ago, when sadly passed away and he was a huge loss to, to to the paddock because he was there at many meetings would come and present trophies and would be quite happy to have a chat about racing in the in the championship back in those days when he'd neatly fold his sports jacket on the back of the car and he did tell these stories
2: yeah he told them many times he um, did but they're, they're always worth listening to fantastic guy but he <laughs> decided to bring in the jacks's trophy a few years ago um, when Jack was still with us. And I did say to Alan, you know, that's that's a nice thing to do. He goes, well, there's no point having a trophy for him after he's died because he won't know about it. No, uh, so it'd be nice to actually, no, you know, it, recognise the fact at the time. The most um,
1: unfair thing that Alan Gow did was to make it the largest, physically the largest trophy we've ever had in the Championship. So poor old Jack, when we got to the <laughs> end of the... who is an elderly fellow, yeah. um, tro- needed help to hand out the award. It's a huge trophy. It stands about that high. It's um, absolutely fantastic. It will continue to go and it's a... It's it's a a, a a trophy which changes from year to year. For some years, it was the rookie. For last year, it was for uh, eligible for drivers that had never been on the podium overall before. So
2: it, I think it, they make it up as they go it, along. They can they just make change it, up, it, don't they?
1: Um, as, as it says in the BTCC regulations, every, everybody. Um, uh, the, I think the last line of the regulations every year these rules are at the discretion of the series administrator.
2: So Basically, there are no rules. That's what that means. That is what that means. Hence my scepticism about covering the championship in the first
1: place. But we got but through that. It works and it works beautifully. So we, we got to um, uh, 1960 and we, we, we had a new era, the Super Tourer era.
2: Yeah, it was '96. Was an odd year for the for the British Touring Car Championship, but the British Saloon Car Championship, I should say. That the rules were modified, um, and so the, there was a little bit more leeway with the cars um, in terms of what could be done to them mechanically. Um, you still had the bigger cars on the grid, like your Jags and what have you, uh, of which there's a beautiful example parked outside. But the champion would have to come from the under one-litre uh, category, the, the one-litre division. It was uh, Doc Shepherd that won it in the end. So in effect. That The the British Saloon Car Championship that year was a one-class category, which everyone says, oh, that didn't happen until 1991. Not true, because it it, it did actually happen in 1960. Uh, Production race
1: at the British Grand Prix
2: at Yes, Uh, Yeah, the production race at the British Grand Prix, where um, it wasn't a championship race, but it featured all the regular championship guys, obviously, being on the support bill of the British Grand Prix. Uh, And it was actually won by Colin Chapman, the Lotus founder, who at the time was thinking of buying one of the Jags, and uh, asked Jaguar if he could take it on an extended kind of test drive, and they said, "Well, we can do better than that. We'll stick you in the entry list for the race at entry And he went on and won it. So, for many years, the BTCC was a, a support race
1: for the for, for the Grand Prix, the British Grand Prix. Yeah and it was a, a huge platform for the championship one and we'll come on to this when we get on to the um on the 1980s 1990s and, and the uh, television coverage but um having that platform um, w- was a huge help to the championship, wasn't it? To be part of the British Grand Prix support package.
2: Well, it certainly was. And, and you know, the British Saloon Car Championship was very well known amongst F1 drivers. You know, they'd regularly be taking part in, in the championship. And, uh, did you know, that happen
1: straight away, that Grand Prix it drivers... Less,
2: um, Mike Hawthorne was, took part in, again, a non-championship race uh, in 1958. And that was the very first year of the British Saloon Car Championship. So, uh, the world champion of that year. Um and yeah, you know, people like Graham Hill were, were regulars in the championship and it even attracted the likes of Jack Brabham Dan Gurney. Um, everybody came along and, and tried to, to have a go at it. They were regularly in the in the larger cars, though, at the front end of the uh, the championship, which meant they struggled when it came to winning overall points because of the way the divisions were split up.
1: And it didn't mean that a driver was in the same car for the whole season. They would switch cars during the season. There, there was a huge amount of choice available for them, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, and people were still trying to work out which was the best car to fit into the specific type of regulations that they had. So they were trying all sorts of different stuff at the time. So, yeah, drivers were, were, were sort of gravitating around different makes and models. Um, but, the, you know, the big success was the guys that were coming from the lower classes.
1: So um, uh, so this is the Mark II Jaguar from 1962, Graham, Graham Hill. Um, yeah. F- photographs, uh, as I say, that adorn this book. is it? Uh, oh, now you're asking. Yeah. Can anybody help?
2: Good. (laughs) Did you not know that, Al?
1: I'm getting there. (laughs) I remember the night races at Snetterton. Um, When were were the night races? I'm just trying to remember. 2002? 2002, 2003. And that would have been my commentary point um, just on the outside standing with the spectators. We'll get on to that. Um, uh, now, you said that you wanted to talk a little bit more in detail uh, when we got on to picture number three uh, for our little chat this evening. Um, a little bit more about about <laughs> Jack Sears. Yeah. Um, we need to talk a little bit more in depth about Jack now, I think.
2: Well, I think that 1963 season was one of the uh, sort of landmark seasons in terms of the British Touring Car Championship. It prompted one of the most iconic cars I think that's ever taken to the grid, and it'd be hard to disagree, um, the Lotus Cortina. Jack Sears actually started... Ford, Ford had realised that this was a really good promotional tool to have your cars winning in the British Touring Car Championship and decided to take things quite seriously. Um, they engaged John Wilman to prepare the cars. Excuse me. And uh, initially, Jack Sears uh, ran in a Cortina GT, um, but they'd had a, they, had, they had a secret weapon, they had an idea uh, and that was to bring over the Galaxy, which was uh, actually originally a NASCAR. Um, and an absolute beast of a car. It's got, you know, 400 plus horsepower. It's got...
1: 450 brake horsepower, seven litres.
2: Yeah, imagine topping that up with petrol. Yeah, quite you know, regular. A heck of a lot, wouldn't it? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I <It's laughs> could do a lap. Quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, so that car came along in, in the mid part of the season. But Ford revolutionised things again with, its, um, with the Lotus Cortina. Um, which went on to have much success in the championship and provided some really sort of iconic moments. So, so Jack actually drove three different cars on his way to winning the championship that year. But I think the relevance of that is that it was Ford's um, passion to, to succeed in the category that kind of raised the level a little bit. People realised that you know this is this is something that we need to take take seriously.
1: Um, absolutely incredible, and, and you're quite right. You're talking about the the iconic. Um, Lotus Cortina, which are still competing now of course um, uh, yeah, well, yeah. particularly down at Goodwood Revival and
2: A few um, modern day touring car drivers are in well, them
1: It's exactly what I was going to say, that, that modern BTCC drivers, um, Gordon Shedden springs immediately to mind But they, Ash Sutton They, uh, Ash Sutton, they cannot wait for that weekend in september that they can get behind the wheel of these things because yeah
2: and going back to the, the the big american cars a lot of guys enjoy driving those because they're so far removed from from what you have on a racetrack today that it, it really is like a different world and and that galaxy of, of jack Sears, when it, when it came over when we ran it um he he often recalled that there was much scoffing up and down the the pit lane. Everyone was like, that's never going to work. That car is just too big. It's not going to handle. The wheels are going to fall off. The drive shafts are going to snap. And they they really kind of put the fear into him that it was just a useless idea, Um, which it completely wasn't. It it did struggle a little bit away from the start lines because Jack was just being very careful with it. Um, But, you know, once it got going, the handling was good. And I think it kind of... That gave a lot of other people the idea um, that bigger cars, big muscly cars, could be the way forwards, and, and it actually prompted a lot more of those to come over.
1: Known as Gentleman Jack, um, I mean, he 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 was a, a a gent. I used to love talking to him. He was a, a, a very gentle man. He was a he was a gent, he was a gent.
2: Yeah, and and also a, a massive, as you said, an, an enthusiast for the championship in itself, and his collection of cars that he had back at his house, including that uh the galaxy he he kept in it in his garage he, he just goes to show um you know the the, the impact that the british Steering car british saloon car championship made on his life um he wasn't just famous for doing 200 miles an hour on the m1
1: <laughs> you should tell that story
2: <laughs> well yeah he, it, it made him quite cross um that uh, it was reported in the national press that during a pre Lamol test uh he took uh, his race car onto the m1 there were no speed limits at the time Drove it up and down to just check everything was working. And when they got it back, they calibrated that he'd been doing 200 miles an hour. A policeman had noticed, um, obviously couldn't keep up with him, so went and found the truck and parked next to the truck waiting for Jack to come back. And uh, yeah, and, and basically asked Jack for an autograph. Didn't even tell him off. There you go, on your way. See you later. Jack was like, oh, I'm in right trouble here. But he wasn't. And uh, yeah, they let him go on his way. But subsequent to that, that story was being told by someone. And it was then overheard by a pesky journalist, who put it in the press that someone had done 200 mile an hour on the on the M1, and about a year later this 70 mile an hour speed limit came in, and everyone blames Jack for that, and he was really furious because it's I'm not sure his he fault, was, yeah, not my fault. He no, says.
1: no, it was the journalist's fault. It was the journalist's <laughs> yeah, fault. Yeah. yeah, it so often is. Uh, let's um, uh, click a right and go on to uh, 1970.
2: Now there, uh, this is this is quite a car, the George Bevan Imp. I, I, um, I've recently had a contact uh, from George Bevan's grandson, who I think has found that car um, uh, in Germany somewhere, and it's being restored. Um, Bill McGovern was, was the king of it. The, the smaller-class cars were clearly the ones that were doing most of the winning. The reason for that is that the top-level cars were... that The class was for outright race wins and generally was more competitive. You had more top-line drivers in it. If you could find a nice little tiddler that, would, that ran nicely and, and didn't break down... Um, it often gave you a, a decent shot of the championship. And, yeah, Bill McGovern took three back-to-back in those.
1: Three titles in a row. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which is uh, uh, pretty impressive. Did anybody own a Hillman Imp
2: in here? Did you? I used yeah. to take taken to school in one.
1: Yeah. Not that you, one, you, not
2: that you? one. No, 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 no. That would have been very <laughs> That would have been cool. there quickly. <laughs> Dad had
1: a Hillman Imp, didn't
2: yeah. he? Yeah, no, a neighbour, but, All yeah.
1: oh, right, uh, very good, yeah. very good. Um, okay, <laughs> let's get on to picture number Five. We reckon. 1978,
2: yeah. 79? Yeah, that's Richard Longman's car. Now, the Mini is obviously a car that is well, well associated with the British Saloon Car Championship, British Touring Car Championship. It's celebrating its sixtieth birthday this year. Shows it shows you, and it's almost fit the profile of when the championship started perfectly. And people pretty quickly worked out that. The great thing about the mini was that you 're not going to have to spend a lot on brakes because you don 't have to brake. you can just go absolutely flat out everywhere you might your tire bill might increase a little bit, but there be there 'll be no wear and tear on the car um, and it was a, It was a really successful car in the btc it was it's won many championships John Love and Alec Poole were champions in it in the early days popular, it was just so many, it was so easy to work on, there were so many around, that loads and loads of people raced them, and uh, yeah, they were often able to, you know, kind of stick it up, the bigger cars, which did the people didn't like very much, but, you know, some, some great drivers at the wheel of those cars, including um, Steve Neal, of course, dad of uh, three-time champion mcneil um,
1: It's an incredible car, isn't it? Because if you think about what it did in, in rallying, in world rallying, in in car racing, it was, uh, it was the all-rounder, wasn't it?
2: Well, it was, yeah, and, and obviously it's, I suppose, one of its most famous moments was winning the Monte Carlo Rally in 1964 with Paddy Hopkirk driving. He also did the British Saloon Car Championship in it as well, so it was, um, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a good news story for the country and it was just such a, a popular and well-loved car.
1: Was it Paddy who was responsible for the, um, for the advent of Rallycross? Uh, tell me more. I think um, uh, so. I, I vaguely remember Paddy saying that, saying this as a story, um, but uh, the BBC wanted to do um, a, a feature um, about rally cars um and they decided to book uh, i don't think they really understood particularly the difference between circuit racing and rallying so they booked brand's hatch um to 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 have a chat so um uh, so paddy and his friends that were going to be involved in this decided that they well they they could use a bit of the circuit and then they could go off to to give the idea of a bit of rallying just to make the footage look um look authentic really Um, in a mini yeah so uh, very good. Al. So so th- th- thank you very much indeed. I do pay attention sometimes yeah, yeah. <laughs> to I'm impressed to, with your knowledge mate, when they, when they're talking to me. Um, uh, other names uh, so 78 79 we're talking um Caprice as well are we?
2: Yeah, I mean yeah. Uh, it's again we go back to the point that in the in the top class which was dominated by Capris in that era. Um people like Gordon Spice and, and Jeff Hallam and everyone just, just knocking seven bells out of each other at the front of the field uh, and splitting the race wins between them, which is, is what gave Richard Longman the chance to, to prevail. I think Gordon Spice, uh, I think Kevin Turner's here, the editor of Autosport, he worked this out, that up until Matt Jackson a couple of years ago, Gordon Spice was the driver that won the most British touring car races, but without actually winning the title overall. Oh, wow. He won five class championships uh, in the Capri, which he absolutely adored, but never never actually claimed the outright um, a trophy, which is a real shame. Also, brilliant driver, brilliant driver. Also, yeah, a,
1: a great driver, um, a great character as well.
2: Yeah, good bloke to go for a beer with.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yes, I did that at the Metropole Hotel um, at the Autosport Show one one year. Did you survive? It was a very late night. <laughs> I can Goodness imagine. Me, or a very early a, morning. I don't drink. Um, I was I was just listening. Okay, um, so we can press on. Hopefully. Here we go. Right. I thought a few people might talk about this. Um, we're up to 1985. I did say that we're, we're, everybody in the room has got their own era. And, and we're sort of coming into the era that both Matt and I began to have a, a regular every other weekend interest in the championship. Yeah, I, I
2: just put on long trousers by that stage. <laughs> do you know what I,
1: mean? so, yeah, I was yeah. a, a little bit older. Um, 1985, Andy Rousen affords the era.
2: Again, this was very much driven by the manufacturer itself. Um, I'm sure all of you remember that when the the Sierra came out as the replacement for the Cortina, it was not very well received. Um, And it got the nickname of the Jelly Mould and and Ford were in all sorts of trouble with it because it wasn't selling. The reps didn't like it and it was the reps that they needed to convince. Uh, And the reps like racing cars, so they decided to engage Andy Rouse to turn the image of the Sierra around. Um, and they decided to do that through the British Touring Car Championship. Um, initially Andy Rouse used the Mercurio, which is a car that was sourced from South Africa, I think it was. Uh, and that's the first sort of front running car to be fitted with a turbocharger as well. So it was not a lot of new technology for Andy to to get to grips with. Um but once once he had, you know, that car was gonna be the the, the bedrock of the championship for, for I don't know, six or seven years and it's it's one that is exceptionally popular. Obviously, after the Mercury, they'd run that, won the championship in 1985, and then after that came the Ford RS Cosworth, Sierra RS Cosworth, uh, which came in 86, and then that led on to the homologation special, I suppose you'd call it, the RS 500, which is an era... People still wax lyrical about now, and, and I will, because it was fantastic. Um, I know it's very much easier to say things were better back then, but, but it was a, a type of touring car that you could watch going around on its own and it would still look impressive. Um, because it was, because of the rules, the way the rules were set, they, they couldn't run them as low to the ground as they wanted to, so they had to had to run them significantly higher um, than than would suit the arrow, which meant that it was tail happy. Cars were sliding around all over the place. They were spitting fire all over the place. Um, and, and Andy Rouse's company, I think, in I think he told me uh, last year that there was one British Grand Prix meeting where Andy Rouse built or derived RS500s. Were about 18 of them on the grid at any one moment. Um, which is absolutely staggering. Um, and of course, there are other versions of it as well. But yes, yeah, some some brilliant, brilliant battles at the front of the field. But again, it, it didn't feature in terms of overall championship results because it was the little classes that were taking the glory. It's a real shame. Still a class structure. Um, yeah.
1: and, and, and in fairness, when you said that you can you can quite happily watch the Sierra running around on its own, with Andy Rouse at the wheel, very often that was the case because <laughs> he, he was incredibly dominant, wasn't
2: he? Yeah, yeah, he was dominant. But um, Steve Soper had a, had a few things to say about that when he came over. Um, obviously, there was a World Touring Car Championship in 1987 and 88. Eggenberger were the dominant force, the kind of the works-supported team from Germany. And, and they would send... Would black. Yeah, probably, I think, one of the best liveries ever to be on, yeah. a, on a, a British touring car. Uh, and they would send Steve and, and sometimes um, Gianfranco Brancatelli over to the UK to kind of uh, try and rein Andy in a little bit. And I'm sure you've all seen the, the classic race from from Brands Hatch with, with Andy Rouse and, and Steve Soper just absolutely going at it all the way through the race. Um, uh, yeah, just, a, just a, a phenomenal car. I mean, 550 brake horsepower. And they, they weren't. You know, there weren't fat tyres. You can you can see the tyres aren't nowhere near as big as they even are today. Um, so trying to get that level of grip down onto the road um, made things extremely tough. But um, yeah, it was it was the the RS 500. Is, is probably the ultimate iteration of a Group 8 car. Absolutely. Yeah, they superb. all came
1: together and had the tourist trophy up at Silverstone, didn't they? No.
2: Yeah, they did. Yeah. And that was, again, you got all the best drivers from Europe coming over, plus some from Australia even, um, up against the best of the Brits. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, but the Australian Brits cars, were yeah. able to hold their own. But that's because, you know, the, the level of competition in the British Touring Car Championship at that stage was absolutely superb. Absolutely. And it
1: worked for Ford, didn't it? Because it did make the car cool. And when you yeah. talk to people. I told you, the touring... reps love
2: their motor racing. Yeah. So it, clearly. It w- because they went out and bought it. And, and,
1: and when you talk to people, um, for, for many people, they do talk about the Sierra as one of the iconic cars of the British Touring Car Championship. We talked about the Mini and the yeah. Lotus Cortina, but the Sierra's right up there, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's definitely the, the, the car of the decade, um, you know, uh, sorry to say that for any Rover SD1 fans, but, um, yeah, that's definitely, the, the Sierra is definitely the car of the 1980s.
1: And um, at the, now, at the end of last year, uh, or towards the end of last year, um, Motorsport News uh, announced the result of a poll, which you conducted. And Autosport. Uh, and a- Autosport as well. Um, to, to find So, what was the poll, and who did you ask?
2: I asked as many champions as I could get hold of, um, to give me a list of their top uh, five best British touring car drivers of all time, so, so and then I added up the scores. So
1: these were people that are
2: around the championship, yep. know the championship drivers, yep. journalists. Not, less, not, not only champions, yeah. There were journalists in there, and, and, and you know everybody I, I could get hold of. I even managed to track down Frank Sittner, which was not easy these days. Goodness me! Found him on a golf course in Monaco. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 he, he gave me his nominations as well. So, so yeah, and uh, Andy Rouse was top of the poll. Um, which is, you know just goes to show that uh, you know people really do remember what he did. Obviously, I mean he won four championships, which from yep. the mid seventies in the more than anyone else so far. Colin uh, is uh, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: quite keen to not necessarily equal it, but to uh, to go one better. Well, of course, and so can Matt Neal.
2: Yeah. can equal it as well. Yeah, yeah. So. Fascinating yeah, stuff um
1: but uh, you presented all Testport international this year on the main stage. you presented andy with um with the this trophy he was quite overwhelmed i think
2: yeah he was uh, he 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 um yeah he he kind of thinks he's forgotten in in the history book somewhere, but he absolutely isn't you know, the amount of modern-day drivers that would still rate Andy in in the top five drivers that have ever been involved in the championship. And and the great thing about Andy as well is it's not just his driving ability. That's matched by his engineering ability. He's got both assets that were just just absolutely superb, which is why there were so many Andy Rouse prepared, built um, cars on the grid at the time.
1: Yeah, Rouse engineering was uh, a a pretty... impressive company for a a, a very long time as well. Um, So we're still talking classes, uh, Toyotas, BMWs, you mentioned Frank Sitner, teamed up with the television presenter Mike Smith. Yes, and that
2: Uh, provided some footage, didn't it? it,
1: Yeah, it really did. Um, uh, This was, uh, for me, um, uh, an era of touring car racing that was, um, is it fair to say, could get reasonably physical?
2: Well, I'd never heard a I've never heard a bleep button used on Grandstand before <laughs> that uh, that that level of uh, competition between Frank Sitner and, and Mike Smith. It was quite physical, um, but there there would be more physicality in the championship to come. But uh, yeah, no no quarters asked or given, and you know around that time as well, that the championship changed significantly in the in the way of television coverage. I mean, that was literally the the magic bullet that that turned touring cars back into something amazing because it was it was dying a little bit. Uh, in 1983, 1984, rules were changed and People weren't really sure what was happening. Um, but it was, the, it was the input of television that really helped get the championship back on its feet. Previously, before they decided to engage Barry Hinchcliffe Productions to film the whole of the season, Grandstand would dip in and out of one or two national race meetings during the year, club race meetings during the year. And then they would broadcast every race from that meeting. So you could end up seeing a a Metro Turbo Challenge race, a Rover race, then a touring car race, and then nothing again for for five or six months. And then it'd be a a Bark Clubby from Thruxton, so you'd be seeing completely different things. So there was no narrative for the TV viewer. You you know, we'd be lucky if you saw something. That completely changed when Barry Hinchcliffe got involved. And and although the man himself underplays it, I think Steve Ryder has got a heck of a lot of responsibility for making that actually happen, and and waving the, the British Touring Car Championship nose under the noses of people that wanted to, that should have known about it. And at the same time, they started covering British F3 on television as well. So it was a, it was a really important building block for for the British Touring Car Championship. The, the work of Barry Hinchcliffe and Steve Ryder.
1: Bringing it into people's living rooms um, with a, a familiar voice as well. Um, uh, to have I Murray mean, Walker yeah. uh, commentating on BBC's grandstand was the perfect match, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, again, and he's someone that's also very loyal to the Championship. He comes to Thruxton whenever he can, kind of doesn't to, to he, watch, to watch the races. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of motor racing fans at, at that time, the only thing you'd see on, uh, on TV was Formula One. Um, and so Murray is a safe pair of hands. He's a familiar voice, and I think that adds to the appeal. If they know Murray's talking to them, they, it's, it's a safe pair of hands, someone they trust.
1: He wrote the forwards uh, to your book. He did, yes. He did, yes. Thanks, Murray. I'm incredi- incredibly proud of my friend for writing um, this. Hey, Murray hands, Walker? But, but, no, no. I'm oh, incre- incre- Incredibly proud of the, of, of the fact that you've produced this and that, uh, that Murray um, r- wrote the forward for it as well, because you're right, he's a big fan. He's yeah. a massive fan. Yeah, he, he absolutely Not of you, is. of the championship. Oh, cheers. No. <laughs> <yeah. laughs>
2: You're making this very difficult, It's Al. just as well we friends, <laughs> isn't it? it? It
1: really is. Um, we'll come back to Murray Walker as uh, as things go on. Um, we need to uh, just go forward. So we're on BBC television. Um, we are. We're coming up to 1990. Um, and you mentioned earlier on um, cars coming from abroad. Um, and uh, cars came from uh, the other side of the world, essentially, yeah, didn't
2: it they? It from jungles, us, from uh, uh, Australia. Dick Johnson built cars with uh, Yokohama tyres. Rob Gravitt, on his way to winning the championship, the only championship that the RS 500 won, and it wasn't Andy Rouse, which is, you know, a bit strange. But Rob was absolutely dominant in that year. Um, but we've just been talking about the impact of television um, and, and what that did for the category. What what they quickly realised was that the class system was. Uh, unworkable for a television audience because, you know, you'd have John Clellan finishing the thirteenth in a race and then going on to be the overall champion and yet Andy Rouse or Rob Gravett up the front weren't it was very tough for people to understand, um, or well, it wasn't tough for motorsport fans to understand, but the general public found it slightly confusing. So essentially,
1: the car that crosses the line first and takes the checkered flag should win, win yep. the race and therefore um, do better than anyone else.
2: Yeah, that is that is um, that's how motor racing should be, and that's how they felt it should be. So, you know, it, Rob, Rob Gravitz was kind of the last year when it was a proper multi-class championship. There was, you know, BMWs and Vauxhall still in it, but that track star car was was the last of the of the, of the big. Group A Dinosaurs, really, as well that's the original uh, derivation of them. And then that was it.
1: They were beasts of cars, those Dick Johnson cars, when they came over. Well,
2: you see, the Yokohamas gave that one too much grip, so it didn't have its tail out as much as the others, so I'm not <laughs> particularly a fan, but there you go. <laughs>
1: Uh, and uh, Rob Gravit in uh, in a Ford Sierra RS 500 from 1990 in that picture. Um, you mentioned BMW and Vauxhall. We'll come on to Vauxhall in a couple of moments, but BMW have been uh, 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 a pretty regular feature of the British t- touring car championship, not not just the British championship, but touring car racing around the world.
2: Yeah, way back to the 60s as well. Um, in, in in the British touring car championship, and I think there's a picture in the book actually of one in the 60s. the it, the. the, the five the 6 series cars the 635 were you know very popular in the championships were the gorgeous cars and can hear kevin tone kevin turner from autosport admiringly thinking about that now um, but it was the when the 3 series came on the perfect kind of touring car which and we're having one back in the championship this year now but that first came along with the M3 version uh, which prodrive built uh, in 1986 and 7 gorgeous car
1: absolutely fantastic car um, So, uh, Rob Gravick, champion in 1990. That's a nice picture. That's a a beautiful picture. Yeah, Will Hoy, um, uh, 1991. 1991 was a very significant year, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, this is when um, the the one one format of car was was basically adopted. Older cars were still allowed to run, but they were... So heavily penalised that they they really wouldn't have stood a, a chance of overall victory. So this is this is where you did get the driver who crossed the line first battling it out for the championship. Um, it was uh, there was a, there was a think tank of people. Toka was, was basically in its in its early stages of being formed. Uh, David Richards from Prodrive, Dave Cook who, who ran the Vauxhall program, uh, Andy Rouse, Alan Gow, the TV guys. They all sat down and kind of derived what they wanted the championship to look like and what they wanted it to be um and you know that is a a hugely significant part when you've got that many technical boffins sitting down together and working out what's going on um that's that's what kick started taking the championship forward
1: it did. Um, it, it exploded in uh, a way that perhaps nobody could predict. Maybe Alan Gower predicted it. But this guy came over from Australia. So not only did Australia give us um, some pretty whizzy Sierra RS500s, they also gave us the guy that was going to take over and run the championship. He, he had a um, good experience of motorsport over in Australia. Um, good mates with Pete Peter Brock. Brock and uh, and uh, they uh, ran a team over in, in Australia. I, I love the fact that we've got um, Will Hoy here That's uh, it's a, a fantastic um, iconic it's an overused word but it's an iconic livery looking back on the British Touring Car Championship and um, uh, another one of the true gents of the championship Will Hoy
2: yeah Will was a, a, a really smashing guy and a, a great ambassador such a mild-mannered guy you wouldn't think yeah, he'd, no. he'd be fitting in with the likes of John Cleland and Steve Soper and what have you but, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah and, and speaking of John Cleland and Steve Soper I guess that takes <laughs> us on to 92 quite well Um <laughs> which was you know the championship was finding its feet as a, as a as a one category uh, uh formula and it, it you know it needed something and the battle between John Cleland Tim Harvey and and Steve Soper in the final round at Silverstone was something that has become possibly the defining image of the British Touring Car Championship actually um for those that don't know Steve Soper mercilessly rammed into John Cleland and took him off the road According to John Cleland, um, <clears throat> but yes, they, they um, yeah they, they came together, came together at Luffield at Silverstone, which um, which handed the championship to Steve Soper's teammate Tim Harvey. Um, Tim, Tim and John don't really still talk, do they? No. they're, they're still they're still angry about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, they pose for cameras occasionally and shake hands yeah, but and I
2: smile. And yeah, but there's the off, there's the barbed comment when the other one's not listening. You uh, know? They, they, they're still at it.
1: It does. And it made for fantastic television as well,
2: didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was fantastic TV. It put um, touring cars back on the front page of Autosport. And the man's and it an was, animal. It was, the man's an animal, yeah. Um, yeah, John's iconic line. What are we doing here? Is this stock car racing? That's what <laughs> he said. It was very, very good. Um but yeah, it, it really did. Uh, it really did bring the championship to the front and centre. Exactly what it needed. And you know, Gao did say afterwards he his only regret was that that was the last round of the year. Because if it had been the penultimate <laughs> one, imagine what the crowd would have been like <laughs> at the finale. <laughs> it's, it's it's one, "Why couldn't they right. have done that earlier?" He said, <laughs> yeah.
1: "It's absolutely right." Um, I mean, this, the 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 balloon of interest in the championship this first part of the nineteen nineties was absolutely immense wasn't it um, uh, should we should we move on from the decider in 1992 to 1993 and, and uh, a, another idea devised by Alan Gale the series director to have a, a, a shootout which was again not an original idea because we had no, one, no just, uh, we just had nicked one back it from 1958,
2: 1958. Um, yeah, no, you took all the cars to Donington for a, for a shootout, but the um, the, the big factor was uh, attracting a, a certain um, IndyCar champion at the time, Nigel Mansell, to come over to Donington Park and take part with the regulars uh, in a Ford Mondeo uh, prepared by Andy Rouse, um, and that automatically drew masses of media coverage, mainstream media coverage, because our Nigel was back. Um, and but it was
1: brilliant, it was also brilliant that he did it, that he wanted to do
2: it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the um, the remuneration in his bank balance might have helped Al. Potentially. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but no, he did it and uh, uh, unfortunately, as 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 you know, didn't end particularly well for him, did it? No, no it didn't. Do you want to expand well, on he, that? Well, he, <laughs> he, yeah, he, he lost control of the car and uh, went into the stanchion of Starkey's Bridge and knocked himself out. Mm. So, yeah, not great. Went to hospital. Yes, yeah, he did. And again, that put the championship back on the front pages even the day after. I think that whole Mansell episode of when he did that and had the crash kept the BTCC on the front pages for about a week. That's the sort of coverage you can't buy.
1: Gao had a few quotes about. Yeah, it as well. <laughs> he was quite
2: happy about <laughs> that. <yeah. laughs>
1: that's for, that's for sure. It was fantastic. It was incredible. The 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 crowd at Donington Park for that, because also um, the fact that Nigel Mansell won the Formula One World Championship in 1992, and then. British fans didn't get chance to slap him on the back and say well done because he 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 didn't compete in the Formula One championship the following year. He went off to do Indy to yeah. to win the championship. So it was it was the British fans' chance to to congratulate their world champion.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was the first time, as you say, he'd raced back on, on UK soil since since winning uh, the F1 world championship. And and you know it it wasn't the end of his dalliance in the because He had a couple more later on, but we'll uh, we'll gloss over those. <laughs>
1: Uh, y- y- yes, indeed. Yeah, there, there, there were a few. I've got some Mantle BTCC stories, but... Um, go on. No, it's not about me. It's about you tonight. One Let's go on to the next one. Right. Um, pick number nine. Um, uh, 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 yeah, it's a fantastic car. The the Alfa Romeo um, 155 Silverstone. So it was a, a, a special edition. Um, yeah. There there was a bit to be said about... I, I know someone that bought a, a 155 Silverstone.
2: Was it Ian Titchmarsh? Uh,
1: no, he never bought one. Oh, that was one. a guess. Was, no, uh, no, he never bought one. But okay. it had to have a little bag of tools in the back of the car when you bought it from the showroom to prove that the rear wing was adjustable. Yes, yeah, that it was the way it was homologated.
2: It was a, a, a very good way of circumnavigating. Well, not circumnavigating the rules, but just pushing the edge of the envelope when uh, when Alfa Romeo came over and, and, and really ramped up the aerodynamics that were involved in the in the super touring era of car, um, they did originally, as you say, sell the Alpha One Five Five Silverstone with the with bits in the boot, and they didn't actually fit them to the car. Splitter was was significant. It was um, a
1: recall, actually. <laughs> you have to bring your car was? back. We yeah, did. We yeah. forgot to give you the bag of tools. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: just in case uh, the scrutineers buy one, they need to make sure that everything was right. <laughs> um, but yeah, the splitter was way beyond anything that um, that anyone had seen before. I mean. Alfa Romeo in the championship in itself is a fantastic thing because it's, it's a wonderful brand. Uh, but they, they came over... They didn't engage a British team to run it. They actually ran it themselves. It, the Italians, lots and lots of espresso coffee machines knocking about the garage. I car was going to
1: say, the smell of, of <laughs> coffee down the pit lane
2: was absolutely fantastic. Smiley Gabrielli's our is well. yeah, It's always Gabrielli. good fun. But they based themselves out of ProDrive uh, and ran the car throughout the year. Rival teams of which, you know, everyone was in works teams virtually at that point. Uh, rival teams weren't too keen on it. Um, protested them. Alpha went off in a huff and didn't contest the round at Alton Park.
1: Yes, there's that iconic television um, uh, coverage of, of, the, of the truck leaving yeah. Alton
2: Park, isn't yeah, it? They, um, yeah, they, they'd had enough. They threw their toys out of the pram. Uh, and then, yeah, it was... Um, but they came... They, they actually had to reduce the level of aerodynamics on the Alfa Romeo's because everyone else was complaining so much, but they did eventually come back. The car wasn't as quick as it was in the early part of the season, although Gabrielli did manage to win a couple more races uh, and become the champion. Significant for for quite a number of reasons, really, because it was the first kind of... Or one of the first, not the first, one of the first big-name foreign imports to come into the BTCC under its manufacturer period, and, and you know, lots of guys, Joe Winklehock and, you know, going on, you've got people like Laurent Aiello and what have you coming into the series. Ivan um, Muller as well. It, it took the championship from being, I would suggest, uh, something that a, a good amateur could aspire to do into something a little bit more different. Uh, amazing teams with amazing ability, amazing drivers. Um, and because they were all works teams the driving got a little bit more robust because it wasn't just someone looking after their own car. It was someone else's car, and they were there to defend the honour of that particular manufacturer, so they would be more than happy to engage in a little bit of argy-bargy. The defensive driving was was probably as strong as it's ever been at that point.
1: And with, with the manufacturers coming in, the budgets went up, the drivers' wages went up, so the stakes just higher and higher and higher and then in 96-97 when we welcomed in Williams Grand Prix Engineering to, to run touring cars this was uh,
2: yep. another big big step. It was yeah and it, you know th- that was because these cars the super touring rules you could run the cars anywhere virtually anywhere in Europe and, and outside of them as well so they were sort of multi-purpose touring cars so for a manufacturer it was a big market to, to, to pitch themselves into. Um, people like Audi, BMW, you know, as you say, Renault, when they came along, everyone knew that it was really important. Um, and, and just looking to find that extra edge, they obviously figured that Grand Prix teams or the way, well, Tom Walkinshaw Racing, of course, having been involved in it as well, um, that that was just the extra edge that they needed.
1: And uh, with Williams Grand Prix Engineering, um, uh, also um, spurned a, a new uh, double champion that's still in the championship now. There's a great story of how Jason Plato um, managed to stalk Frank Williams to, 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 to get the drive.
2: But yeah, no, he, he had a test. Uh, he had a rookie test in the Laguna and was very, very fast. But unfortunately, um, got a letter from Frank saying, I'm sorry, you haven't got the drive because we need someone with a higher profile. Uh, and they were talking about people like Jean-Christophe Bouillon, uh, Formula One driver. And uh, Jason got the hump and uh, drove to Williams and expressed his thoughts in a polite way. And did Frank changed his mind.
1: And, uh, he's just he uh, announced that he'll be back for another year. Uh, this year in 2019, which is fantastic news. Williams Grand Prix Engineering had a 60-member team. I mean, that, that was yeah. a huge operation.
2: Absolutely. And Jason, when Jason got the drive with them... Uh, in 1997, he said, you know, they'd go testing in Spain, which is not unusual, they still do that today. But he said there would be three Arctic trucks that would come down just full of tyres and one of them would just be for him a whole articulated lorry full of tyres. It's like the, the budgets involved were just astronomical and the levels of technology that the teams are employing as well.
1: It was spiralling, wasn't it? Yeah,
2: it, it went up quite significantly.
1: We also saw uh, um, around this era um, the advent of three chaps that got together and formed Triple Eight Race Engineering.
2: Yes, Roland Dane, Derek Warwick and Ian Harrison. Um, Ian had originally been part of the Williams crew um, Ian Harrison, a former team manager at the Williams Grand Prix team, had been part of the touring car crew, and then uh, sort of decided to devise his own his own team with Roland Dane and, and Derek Warwick. Got the Vauxhall deal, and Triple Eight is probably one of the most successful teams that's ever set foot in a BTCC paddock. Sadly,
1: um, not. Continuing to compete with us in the BTCC, which is which is a a, a great shame, but a, pro, a hugely prolific team, um, and
2: uh, it but it's got the Formula One ethos that, that Ian brought with him from the Williams team, um, and you know that maintained all the way through to to the end of when the team was running the cars. Um,
1: 1999. So now you can th- talk about this one. So th- this was the most wonderful moment. So I I, I was just. Um, uh, quite recently, um, a, a regular uh, pit lane commentator and presenter for the British Touring Car Championship. Um, and uh, the first chap that I really made friends with, first driver that I made friends with, it's quite a, um, where, when a championship is as successful and has such a high profile, um, it can be a little bit intimidating being around the paddock. and I
2: was intimidated you, meeting you. Were, were you? Yeah, I was. Still am. <laughs> I don't believe a word of <laughs> it.
1: Um, but, but um, you know, you're talking to people that you've been watching on television and they're heroes um, uh, to some extent, but you need to be on a level and to be interviewing them. The first bloke that made friends with me was Matt Neal. He was incredibly friendly. Um, a, a very kind and welcoming chap um, was Matt. And he'd been racing in the championship since the early... Uh, 1990s yeah, yeah. so um, the, the longest standing driver in the championship but 1999 was a moment he he'd, he'd made friends with me he'd made me feel very welcome doing the job that I was doing um and his family team run by his dad Steve who also competed in the in the British saloon Car championship back in the 1960s in a, in a, in a mini um, he they were running team dynamics it was their own team but they were a privateer so they were competing in a Nissan Primera um, alongside the manufacturers and uh, Alan Ga decided at the start of the year 19, uh, 1999 um, that wouldn't it be a, a jolly wheeze if we offered um, Quarter of a million pounds to any private team that could win a race overall, and we didn't have to wait too long before gal got his big cheque. First round, wasn't it? It was at the first round,
2: Donington Park. Yeah, but gal said to me that, that he had some sort of prize indemnity insurance thing going on. It was insurance. Wasn't money out of his pocket? No. No, but, but, that, be,
1: but, but that that makes a much better story if we just say Alan Gow has just written out a really <laughs> big check. It was an amazing moment. It was lovely. And Steve and, and Matt got on the podium together. There were, there were tears and it was absolutely fantastic.
2: Yeah, but it nearly didn't happen because he stalled, didn't he, in his pit stop? Were you commentating on that? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he did.
1: Yeah, yeah he had a little moment uh, uh, and then I uh, had to get past James Thompson. We, uh, super Touring era, uh, uh, 2000. And this is when um, manufacturers were running three cars in 2000. So it was the end of the Super Touring era. Um, but they were, uh, if, if like in the 1970s, you got people from various popular groups and they made a super group, these were super teams, weren't they?
2: They were, yeah. There were only three works teams, you say, some sort of nine official factory entries, uh, three Hondas, three Vauxhalls and three Fords. The Fords were run by ProDrive uh, and they uh, put together Anthony Reid, Ricard Rydell and um, Alain Menu to drive them, which is, yeah, as you say, as, as close to a supergroup as you probably think you could get. Um, the super-touring rules had been evolved to such a degree in terms of the aerodynamics, the sophistication of the car, what they were doing, the, the rumour is that to win the b in 2000, which Alan Manu did in, in, the, in the Mondeo, they spent £10 million doing it. And that was just running three cars. Um, which is why a lot of the manufacturers had walked away at that point because they simply couldn't stump up that sort of cash. Uh, and I think they realised that a crunch point you know, was coming for the b Things needed to change. Um, it, it w- it's interesting, actually. We, we, did a, we did a piece in Motorsport News a while ago where I was trying to define what was the greatest era in the in the BCC in terms of lap times and what have you, and the super touring era car from 2000 still is the fastest that we've been. but well, that was at Thruxton. Uh, it's one of the voxels, uh, actually was the fastest. They've never been as fast as they were at that stage, but they've never been 10 million quid's worth of kit since that point. No, Uh, it it
1: was incredible. And um, uh, the writing was pretty much on the wall as well. It had to be topped up with um, production machines, didn't it? There there was a a class which kind of went against the ethos of the whole idea of the one-class structure at the start of the 90s.
2: Yeah, but a heart back to the original days of the, the British saloon car Yeah, as yeah. well, wasn't it, really? Which is which was quite ironic. Um, yeah, and at, at the end of that year, whether through luck, chance, or just being very clever, um, Alan Gow walked away from the championship as well. Uh, Octagon Motorsport came in. They were trying to buy everything. I'm surprised they didn't buy your contract, out, to be honest. They were buying absolutely everything at the time. Uh, and uh, offered Gow a lot of money for it, um, which, which he accepted. Alan had also raised the profile of the championship. We talked about television and what was going on on the circuit in terms of works teams and what have you. He also licensed a computer game to no, Codemasters. I mean, that was the
1: thing. So um, so we come on to picture 11. So this is um, uh, post-Gao era. Um, the the new format of, of the BTCC, the new regulations for the cars essentially, were devised while Gao was still... At the helm, yeah, yeah, he um, was
2: part of it. And Peter Richie's the chief scrutineer um, was was uh, instrumental in putting them together. The main um, uh, proposition was that they ran a number of control parts, control components, to keep the costs down, uh, take away some of the aero um, basically, and, and bring the cars, you know, back to a manageable level financially and a manageable level for the works teams. It took a while for that penny to drop. The teams didn't really want to commit to it straight away. Vauxhall, so long a loyal supporter of the BTC, was straight there, as they always are, uh, because they're fantastic, uh, particularly in that era. But it was only really Peugeot and MG that kind of had a little look at the rules as well. And the production class cars were running at the front of the field. They decided to give them a head start, like a handicap race, and see if the Tourists could then overtake. Just, the championship got very messy. um, And it wasn't, it wasn't really ticking the boxes it needed to at that point.
1: It was in a bit of a muddle, wasn't it,
2: really? It was, yeah. It must have been very hard for you as a commentator trying to work out how you portray the excitement. And also, you'd have had about 12 drivers on the, on the podium afterwards it, as it well, wouldn't you? It was tricky,
1: but there were, there, there were some fantastic things. Um, we, we, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to be a bit tabloid about this, but when drivers um, dislike each other, um, and there's a bit of Archie and a bit of needle. That's great for me. I love it. I, 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 and that, that that year, there was a bit of that, wasn't there? You are tabloid. It, aren't you? it, it was a bit. It was <laughs> it, it was a yeah.
2: It was. It was. Um, it was basically the season of uh, Ivan Muller versus Jason Plato, uh, both going for the championship. They really hated each they, other, didn't they? Yeah. There was an incident. I think the first, the, the most controversial one was at Silverstone, where. Jason accused Ivan of something, and Ivan accused Jason of something. They ended up having contact on the tr- on the track, and and that continued through Donington and and onto the last round at Brown's Hatch. Um, so yeah, it was it was, uh, I guess for you Al, to keeping your storyline going, keeping the plotline going, it was great, but it, it wasn't. Much fun for anybody in the team, and it was horrible. Yeah, and Jason was straight out of Vauxhall after winning that championship. They they didn't take him back, so um,
1: it was horrible to be around. And and I I had to apologise for words that had been used during interviews after after the. um,
2: I remember one particular incident where that happened. I I do as well. Yeah, yeah, that was at Thruxton. It it was. Yeah, Yeah. Ivan was slightly aggrieved that Jason had taken him off on the approach to the chicane. And politely informed everybody over the PA that he was here to race and not to something die, <laughs> which is what he actually said. He did, yeah. You had to apologise to any small people that might be listening.
1: I did. I, I apologised yeah, to youngsters great, after that. Yeah. Nice um I nice touch. I think it's fair to say um, that at that time it missed perhaps the dictator at the helm that it has enjoyed during the 1990s because Alan Gow runs the championship in a quite remarkable way. He surrounds himself by people that know what they're doing and and um, uh, really are very very good.
2: Well, how come and you've got the job? Very then?
1: lot. I don't know. Just through <laughs> through <a> revelation. <laughs> through luck, not judgment, <laughs> yeah, to be perfectly not. honest. Um, but he, he, he's surrounded by Peter Riches, You mentioned the chief yeah. technical delegate, um, yeah. uh, who uh, takes care of technical regulations. And he in turn surrounds himself by a team. But at the end of the day, there's one man at the top of the uh, of the triangle, and Alan Gow. Pretty much 99% of the time, we'll come up with an answer immediately. Yes, and it's usually no. And and <laughs> and and, but it's usually the right answer. Yeah. Um, um, and and in fairness, um, in the BTCT regulation era when it started, it missed that decisiveness at the
2: top of the tree. It did, um, but it wasn't long till Adam was back. Because uh, Octagon decided to uh, to get out of British motorsport in two thousand three, and uh, Alan came back in. So basically, what he'd done is he sold it at top dollar and, and bought it at rock bottom dollar. <sighs> so another Porsche in the collection, I think. Two thousand and three uh, was yeah. when
1: Alan Gale came back, um, and uh, and two thousand and four. So al- almost immediately when um, uh, when Gao announced that he was coming back, I think it was at Silverstone. I vaguely remember yeah. it's announced at yeah. Silverstone. I did an interview with him um, and he had instantly took the decision, okay, well, we've got these regulations for cars that were exclusively for the British Touring Car Championship, but we're <laughs> going to welcome in the cars that are currently competing in the, the European, the World Touring Car Championship.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, this was part of the problem that, that probably afflicted, uh, afflicted the, the Britain in that period is that the rules globally were unstable as well because the Super Touring bubble had burst everywhere, more or less. Um, so it was difficult to kind of navigate your way through that. And then we got on Super 2000 cars, which Alan introduced into the championship in 2004, which opened it up to more manufacturers that wanted to come and that the people had kit that they could use. Um, so it, it really was good. But just going back to touching on Jason and Ivan, Jason Plato came back to the championship in 2004 with Seat, um, who were also running cars globally as well. And I remember going to the uh, the pre-season media day at Donington Park, um, and Ivan was still with Vauxhall, and, and Jason was was with SEAT. And uh, at the start of the day, they they would do some tracking shots for photography. They have a like a people carrier with normally Jacob Ebrey and some other photographers hanging out the back of it and taking pictures of the cars head-on. They're only at about 30 miles an hour, but it's just to, to, to set the scene for the shots. And in one of the uh, in one of the uh, uh, runs that they did, Jason Plato, who was on the extreme left of the circuit. Speared 90 degrees right into Ivan Muller at 30 miles an hour. And I was Jason, what, what on earth were you doing that for? He said, that's the picture you will want and you'll put it on the front page, won't you? And we did, we did, because the the war is back on. He gets Uh, it. So he absolutely knew what he was doing and Ivan was spitting feathers about that. It was only 30 miles an hour. There wasn't any damage done, but um, yeah, he made the headlines like it should. The
1: thing is that Plato has worked this championship so well over the years and he knows what makes headlines and he he knows how to to play this game.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's something that, you know, when the television cameras came in, in, in in 1988... John Clellan was probably the first guy that worked out. You, you've got to have a personality to back up what you're doing on the track, and uh, you know some of his quotes and and, and uh, were memorable and still are. So a driver these days, or, or to to have the massive fan base, have got to be a TV personality as much as they have a racing driver, um, and that's something that a lot of them, not all of them, get to grips with. Um,
1: 2007. Uh, I think is this picture. Um, Fabrizio Giovanardi came over to the championship. Already, he'd made his mark on touring car racing around the world. He was
2: uh, He's got um, nine titles. In incredible titles. history,
1: yeah. and uh, and then wanted to come over and compete in the British touring car championship. Did so to great effect.
2: Yeah, he he came from the World Touring Car Championship where he'd been racing in Alfa Romeo and, and came over and. Uh, um initially drove the Astra Sport hatch, which was, a, I'm sure Ian Harrison wouldn't mind me saying, he's a dog of a car. Um, didn't like it at all, so they decided to build him a brand new S2000 uh, Vauxhall Vectra, which he was instrumental in, in helping design. For Richard, probably the last of the, the big-name overseas drivers to be in the championship, really. Um, paid very handsomely by Vauxhall for doing it. Uh, and, yeah, a really, a really good guy. It made a lot of friends when he was over here. Um, I remember speaking to him when he signed up to join the BTCC and I, I said, you know, this this isn't World Touring Cars, mate, you you are going to get beaten up here. It's like, no, no, I'm a racing driver, I can handle it. And he saw me after the first round and he was like, you were right, <laughs> this is rough and tough stuff. It is
1: unique, isn't it? it. It's, a, it's a unique championship. But,
2: but yeah, a, a, a terrific guy and... Um, Yeah, that was actually uh, Vauxhall's sort of last winning car in the BTCC, in terms of championships, uh, which was which is itself is an end of an era because they've been such a loyal supporter and thrown so much at it, um, and we're also in the habit of bringing over sort of superstar names from abroad. Um, So yeah, it was a shame to lose them.
1: That went down to the uh, end of the season, but it was an interesting one because uh, it was with Giovanardi and Plato for the finale, but um, Plato had already started to um, become a television personality, test driving cars, and he was injured at the end of the year for the show. Yeah,
2: he, yeah, he was um, test driving a, a, a car on a, a supercar for fifth gear, which is the programme he but did. What it was? It was a Caparo T1. Is the name of well, the car, well
1: remembered, caught fire, and, uh,
2: it caught fire yeah, and, and burned. So, it wasn't that super um, that car, <laughs> was it? <laughs> Sizzling. Um, so he went to the last round uh, heavily, heavily bandaged, and and
1: it was at Thruxton
2: as was well? At wasn't Thruxton, it? which yeah. is where you've really got to hang on. Um, and I remember I went to see him after F- uh, Free Practice One before Free Practice Two, and he was having his hands redressed because they're all in massive bandages. And it, the, the look of agony on his face. going to work, it was, was it? was just, you know, it was absolutely horrifying to watch it. But he still did all three races. Sadly, he he lost out to Gio in the end. But um, but yeah, really drove through the pain barrier. But. Uh, had an immense friendship with the uh as well and sort of said if I was going to lose to anyone then you know this us who I'll lose to which yeah. was a really honourable thing it to do. It was
1: lovely yeah. 2011 Jason uh, beat Andy Rouse's record of wins to uh, race number 61.
2: 61 yeah Andy Andy was on 60 for quite a while. Um, of course the format of the race days is different now you've got three chances to win. You know the, the only accurate statistic really would be a, a strike rate of wins per, per start but I I haven't sat down to work that one out <laughs> yet. But but yeah, Jason's 61 wins. He's now gone up to 97, although there is some debate about whether he actually has got 97 or not because he's including a race where he finished behind one of the production cars and behind a non-point scoring touring car. But I, I've tried to point this out to him, but he's not having it. He's, he having he's on on because he wants to win 100 he races. he wants to get to 100, which, <laughs> um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, he's, he's coming back to the grid this year with, with the PowerMax Racing Vauxhall team. Back with the Vauxhall. Um, with the Vauxhall, which is a nice kind of close the loop on that story. And uh, yeah, three more wins and he will he will reach the magic hundred mark so that'll be absolutely superb.
1: You're not superstitious because you selected thirteen pictures in total. Picture number thirteen uh, brings us pretty much yep. up to date with the NGTC era of cars.
2: Yeah, again, this was another sort of reinvention from the technical boffins that run the championship. You know, they realised that uh, the global scene was moving; they had to change again. They had they wanted to keep costs down again, um, so they looked at making even more mandated parts in these cars. Things like gearboxes, electronics, suspension components, subframes. Uh, most of the things in the car are common throughout. So the the actual scope of the engineers at the moment in the BCC isn't as wide as as it ever has been, which is a frustration for a lot of them. But as I was saying earlier on about the drivers, if you look at the, the teams with the best engineers, they're always at the front. So there is obviously some input that they can still have. So saying that it's it's not an engineering formula any, anymore isn't necessarily too true. Um, the, the 125i M Sport BMW, which uh, is pictured here, that's Colin Turkington on his way to winning the championship. 2014 has been one of the most successful cars of the, of the um, NGTC period, run by West Surrey just down the road. And... Uh, Dave announced a couple of weeks ago that they're bringing in the brand new 3 Series, which I, I went to go and have a look at last Friday at West Surrey's headquarters in Lower Sunbury, and it had got off to the paint shop, so I just looked at a big space on the ground. But at least I managed to get an interview with Dick Bennett, so that was all right.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Dick Bennett, who runs the West Surrey Racing WSR squad and uh, now called Team BMW, because they're a manufacturer entry with uh, support
2: from BMW yeah, but UK. he'll insist that they're only works-assisted,
1: Works assistant, works
2: teammate. I'm still poor. No. no, you aren't, Dick. Come on, come no. on. Dick, Dick's done all right over
1: the years, that's for sure. Yeah. And, and in fairness, the WSR squad and um, and Dick Bennett's, who are famed for their attention to detail, absolutely incredible preparation and engineering team. Um, and they've taken Colin to three titles, um, so he's uh, joined the exclusive club, looking for title number four to equal Andy Rouse's record this year. Um, but um, but Dick's been around this championship with WSR for a lot of years. Yeah. Matt, back into the 1990s with Super Touring.
2: Yeah, yeah, he was he was part of the the original um, Ford program before he went on to Honda. And we were discussing it in the office the other day that you know is Dick Bennett now more known for being a touring car team manager than he is for being a single seater team manager because of course he ran out in center centre in and Formula Three, Barry and Alan Mcnish, people like that. But and Mick okay. is he now more known as a, as a tin top guy? Probably right. I would have thought um, or yeah. equal. Or equal, yeah. So quite a, quite a shift for him, but uh, yeah, it's great having having someone like Dick with his knowledge and his his talent in the paddock, and he's a, he's a he's a great guy to chat to.
1: Well, the last hour or thereabouts, everybody has been the equivalent of speed dating, um, covering sixty years. Well, you didn't
2: buy me a drink. Of the
1: <laughs> no, you you had a voucher. Um, uh, it's all covered in this quite glorious book it's fantastic Um, I'm not I'm I'm inclined to agree with Alan Gow the picture of you on page nine having a chat to Jason Plato isn't the most flattering picture of you is it thanks for your time out
2: brilliant (laughs) cheers
1: thanks very much Um, uh, but it is the most marvellous book. You should be incredibly proud, Matt. Fair it's uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, and the, the I, I joked earlier on about the uh, the pictures. The words are pretty good, but the the memories and the photographs in this thing are just brilliant. So well done, Matt. Congratulations. And uh, you, you'll be signing volumes of this book tonight. So in just a couple of minutes. But um, do we have any questions? You've been terribly good. <coughs> Uh, oh, do don't you, put the lights up. <laughs> do, do people remember the, um, the Sunday night at the London Palladium
3: when they had the whole mini team come over? No?
2: I don't remember Yeah, they had... I don't, a, I don't remember that. What they t- had all
3: three mini, mini cars, minis, and Paddy Hopkirk and the others on the revolving
2: turntable. Wow, I didn't know that. I did not know that.
0: Matt, what do you think about Mark Blundell coming back into the championship? Do you think he'll be competitive? And um, there's a lot of sort of stories saying, well, you know, why is this old guy coming back? He's taking a, the uh, seat of a possible young gun. What's your views on that?
2: Firstly, he, he hasn't taken anyone's seat. You know, it's it's you pay, you play. That's the way British Touring Car Championship works. And there's been some, uh, some very interesting messages floating around social media um, saying that, you know, the old guys are taking the seats of so the young guys. They're not, you know, if the young guys can get the money, anybody can have a seat. So let's deal with that one. In terms of Mark... He's coming back. (coughs) He told me the other day, he said, You know, I've always wanted to do the BTCC, and if I don't do it now, I'm 52 years old, I'll never get the chance. I get the feeling there's something more behind it, which hopefully you'll be able to read about in Autosport next week, because I'm going to interview him tomorrow, funnily enough. Everyone seems to think that he's going to get beaten up because it is it is a tough championship to get on top of. And and as we've said, a lot of the drivers that are at the front have been doing it for years and years and years and, and they know their way around a front-wheel drive um, saloon car. I'm, I'm not so sure. He, he's in the AMD tuning Audi, which is a pretty good car. It'll be good on the fast circuits. And Mark is a guy, you know, I remember watching him coming up through Formula Ford and Formula 3, he certainly doesn't lack anything in terms of putting his heart and soul into, into what he does when he's when he's behind the wheel, so winning races might be a stretch, but but I definitely think he'll he'll be knocking on the door of the top eight, top ten, um, and maybe you know as his knowledge base gets better then, then maybe go forward even from there.
0: Right, you mentioned Jason Plato. Yes. why did Jason not do so well in the Subaru and was trounced by his teammate who won the championship?
2: Because his teammate's much younger and better looking than Jason. No, 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 uh, <laughs> no. It, it, it's it's a bit of a mystery. Obviously, in the first season when he was up against Colin Tuckington, he was pretty even Stevens with Colin at the start of that year. And then going into the next season, he did have quite a significant crash at Brands Hatch at the first round against the pit wall, which probably took him quite a while to get over. Um, and then it, it, it didn't really click together last year. The, the beginning part of last year wasn't good for Ash either. I mean, he didn't start winning races until we got to Croft, which is virtually half, actually, the championship. A lot of people have said to Jason, well, clearly you can't drive a rear-wheel-drive touring car, because I think all but two of his 97 wins have come in front-wheel-drive touring cars. He says that's rubbish. I'm not going to use the word he actually said. Uh, he, he says he said that's rubbish. Um, but I think when he gets back into the Vauxhall Astra that he'll be doing this year with Powermax Racing, I'm expecting him to be right back up the sharp end. I think there's there's a lot of stuff that went on at Team BMR and Subaru where he was alongside Ash that we don't know, uh, and he's refusing to spill the beans. He says that's because he's writing his autobiography, which is due out next year. So I think you'll find the full story when that book finally hits the hits the bookshelves.
0: Perfect. We've got a question from Derek Red from uh, over here from Oh really? Oh also Sport.
2: Oh, don't give my this mic. A
4: rare moment from being in the same room as two heroes, really. Well done, chaps. Um, just two observations, not really questions. My first ever race meeting was Aintree64, and I had the great pleasure of meeting Jack Sears a few years ago when we talked about it, and he reminded me that he had a letter from the governing body of the time, the REC, advising him not to carry the roll cage. It was not a legal product in a British race. So his solicitor wrote back to the REC suggesting if anything serious happened to their client, they would be held responsible. And forever and a day afterwards, raw cages became pretty normal, really. So Jack, not that. only did he introduce a 70 limit, he also sort of introduced roll cages. <laughs> Uh, and Very My good. second observation, Matt, I know you're desperate to run me down, but uh, my second observation was my first Grand Prix, 68 Brands Hatch, Rob Walker, Lotus 49, Joe Sifford. How could anything go quicker? 450 horsepower, 400 kilos. And then some years later, I was watching touring cars and John Cleland in a Cavalier was lapping Brands, similar circuit, quicker than a Lotus 49 had.
2: How can that please, be? Please don't tell that to John Cleland. Please, because they will never hear really the end of that if you do that. I'm not going to forward that information on.
0: You talk about Jack Sears and the uh, Galaxies, but if my memory serves me right, gwen Bailey? Yes, gwen Bailey. Used Gwayne to, to run well. one. Yeah,
2: yeah, and absolutely.
0: I think it was John Whitmore or was he a Cortina's? Sorry, Sir John Whitmore was he Cortinas or did he? No,
2: he was in Cortinas. Right, Cortina. so it
0: was just Gwen Bailey and, yeah. and Jack Steers
2: and But then they the, they the developed the Falcons came over and all that sort of stuff and Mustangs and Chevrolets and all sorts of there were plenty of drivers in them. Yeah, um, we saw him at the Motor 6 hours? Yeah. Brands
0: Hatch, if the old grey matters is yeah, yeah, yeah. still working. Yeah, cool. Okay, thank You're you. Right. <laughs> I think one person you've left out significantly is Jerry Marshall.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would, I would argue probably better known for special saloons and stuff like that rather than the BCC. Although he was a, a significant figure in the BCC in and in a regular podium finisher in his Vauxhall. Jerry, had, you know, one, Alan Hyde said, you know, when he met Matt Neal, talked about meeting his heroes. And meeting Jerry for me was was something really particularly special. I got to interview him for um, motoring news, motorsport news a, a few years ago, and I phoned him up when I was like, oh, Jerry, you know, want to come over and, and do a piece with you. He said, all, all right, boy, yeah, that's fine. He said, you're going to drive me down the pub then? So I said, no, no. "I, said, all, right. I said, all right. So I, I actually had to drive him in my little Vauxhall Corsa down to the local pub. I've never been so petrified in my life. And as we walked into the pub, are you on expenses, boy? I said, yeah, I said, yeah, yeah, I am, funnily enough. And uh, you know, the, the stories that came out after eight pints were fantastic, absolutely fantastic and then he persuaded me to drive him home, and that was the interview done. So nice day out for Jerry, really. Well, that, that was the name of his book, wasn't it? Only here for the beer. <laughs> and he certainly was that day, I'll tell you.
0: OK, we did um, hope to have David Brody, or Dave Brody, here tonight, but unfortunately he's not too well. Um, but we have someone that knows a little bit about his quest to uh, restore the uh, Escort Run Baby Run. I don't know where the gentleman is.
5: Yeah, uh, good evening. I, I'm Nigel Webb. Um, I, I don't actually have a question. I was just going to say Jack Sears drove um, that Mark 1 Jaguar outside that uh, Steve Clark oh, wow. asked me to bring up. Fantastic. And he drove that for Tommy Sopworth in 59, yeah. um, wow. after Ivor Webb sadly killed yes. Killed in August, I think,
2: 59. Yeah, he, uh, yeah was, he did the first couple of rounds, didn't he, Ivor, and then they switched the car over, yeah.
5: Yeah, that's right. And, Obviously, as many of us had the privilege of um, mm. of meeting Jack, and uh, you know, he yeah. said he had a lovely time, and it was a wonderful introduction. Uh, after the uh, the Riley, so it was a bit quicker, but
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, well, he handled um, it well. Just so. the
5: other thing is just boring. I'm rebuilding um, seguin Bailey's Mark One UXO okay. 400. Wow! Uh, at the moment, so uh, brilliant, but another year, I'm sure, or more. Okay, well, That yeah. was enough of me. Brilliant. Thank you,
0: Nigel, Thank for bringing you. the car along. Good evening. Um,
3: yes, as Steve said, David Brode is rebuilding his run, baby run escort, or at least he's moving it from one shed to another and um, somebody else is doing it for him. Um, in tandem with that, they're making a film as they go along, uh, interviewing as many people as they can, Find and get on board. So, we could just put that out to the masses. And yeah. if anybody would like to be involved and be willing to be interviewed, then perhaps yeah, you can contact yeah. Steve or Tim. Yeah, and
2: definitely. I've seen some footage of it already. There's some clips that are already emerging on, on websites, and it's absolutely fascinating. Broad. Leaves no stone unturned when it comes to telling any story. So, um, <laughs> yeah, one particularly with him as the central player is going to be fantastic. And uh, yeah, Comments from, from Frank Williams. He's and, also and doing a road
3: version, which you reckoned he reckoned he'd done in period, but I'm yet to see one.
2: Right, okay. But yeah. He reckons they
3: were roadie brodies. <laughs> in, in, in <laughs> he, yeah, he would have to so do that. So that he's, um, you know, he's trying to buy up only you know, Mark One he can lay his hands on and turn them into roadie brodies. Oh, okay. As you say, bro. David Brody's story.
2: Never short of an idea is David, is he? But yeah, Brode's another guy that's still really keen on the championship, even now he still follows it, um, you know, I sometimes see him at the BRDC and he's still asking all about the b 2 and, and what's going on, so, so yeah, another, another big enthusiast.
0: Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Matt and Alan, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>